Brothers, we now come to that time in our corporate worship when we listen to the Word of God as it is preached, knowing fully well that it is the risen Christ who speaks to His people by His Spirit in His Word. And so we must do what the writer to the Hebrews tells us to do in Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. So let me now invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue to meditate on the resurrection of Christ and what that means for His people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 to 28. Let's ask the Lord for His help as we approach His Word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look to your word, that we would hear the voice of our shepherd speaking to us. As we read these words about the resurrection of our Savior, O oh Lord, help us see the glory and the majesty of your sovereign power. Help us understand the gospel of your kingdom. Help us understand it so that we might set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the coming of Jesus Christ. Father, strengthen our faith so that we would be sure of this truth that our King has conquered the grave and that He is returning for His people. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What caused World War I? I'm talking about the Great War that lasted from 1914 to 1918. This was an international conflict that resulted in the deaths of more than 16 million people. 16 million people. Now, analyzing the causes of any war can be quite difficult, complex even. While historians agree that World War I was actually the, the culmination of a long series of events stretching back to the late 1800s, there seems to be a, a consensus that one event set into motion a war that led to the collapse of the sprawling Austro-Hungarian, Ottoman, and Russian empires that had existed for centuries. Do you know what that one event was? That one event was the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife by a 19-year-old Bosnian Serb. So Ferdinand was heir to the Austrian-Hungarian throne. And so a month later, they declared war on the Serbs. And because of the various political alliances that had formed, several nations got involved, some backing Austria and Hungary, and others backing the Serbs, the war pitted the central powers, namely Germany, Austria, Hungary, and, and Turkey, against the Allies, mainly France, Great Britain, Russia, Italy, Japan, and then from the 1917, uh, the United States joined as well. The war ended with the defeat of the central powers. And at that time, some Europeans uh, called this war the war to end all wars. And they called it that because of the, the devastation, the then unparalleled scale and, and loss of life. But that was not the end. Because the events of World War I and the many unsettled disputes that remained after the war set the stage for World War II that began in 1939. Now, when Paul describes the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he describes it as this pivotal event in human history which sets in motion a series of divinely ordained acts. So when Jesus spoke of his coming death in John 12 verse 31, he called that event the judgment of the world, a time when the ruler of this world, Satan, would be cast out. We know that Satan has been dealt a fatal blow because of Jesus' victory. Uh, the serpent's head has been bruised. 
Colossians 2.15 says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them through the cross. So the cross is where God made foolish the wisdom of the world. That's 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20. And then came that glorious morning when Christ rose from the dead. And when he did, he inaugurated the new age. He ascended into heaven and he took a seat at the right hand of the Father from where he now reigns until he vanquishes all his enemies. Friends, because of the death and resurrection, the powers of the age to come have broken in into our present age. A divine invasion has taken place. Just imagine we have the Spirit dwelling and working in us. That is a fact. And to have the Spirit dwelling and working in us is to have the powers of the age to come working in us. Eternity has invaded our present. Now when we read the scriptures, we realize that this is actually a culmination of a long series of events stretching back, not to the 1800s, but to the garden. Stretching back to the garden and ultimately to God's great redemptive purposes. It is a fulfillment of all the promises of God in the Old Testament scriptures. But it is this one event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which changes everything. Brothers, life is not meaningless. Human history has a goal. It is not an endless cycle. It is heading somewhere because Jesus rose from the dead. Now last week when we looked at verses 12 to 19, we saw how foolish it was on the part of the Corinthians to deny the resurrection of believers from the dead. So Paul says if you deny the bodily resurrection of believers, you deny the resurrection of Jesus. And if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, you deny the gospel itself. And if you deny the gospel, then we have no hope. We are of all people the most to be pitied. Beloved, it is this gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ in which we stand. It is by faith in this gospel that we are being saved. It is this gospel that sanctifies the way we, we think, we feel, and act. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Christian life is only possible because of the resurrection. Because he rose from the dead, all those for whom he died, all those who trust in him, can now live lives that glorify God. Because he rose from the dead, we who have been born again by the Spirit can have a sure hope that we too will rise from, our from, from the dead when our Savior returns. When He returns to usher in the fullness of His kingdom. And so after pointing out how absurd it is to deny the resurrection of Christ by denying the resurrection of believers, Paul now teaches the Corinthians what the resurrection of Jesus actually accomplishes both in human history and in the life of a believer. Here's what the resurrection accomplishes. And because of these results, these consequences of the resurrection of Christ, and the hope of our own resurrection, brothers and sisters, we can abound in the work of the Lord. Because of that great hope, because of the resurrection of Christ, because of the hope of our own resurrection, we can abound in the work of the Lord. Think about all that Paul has been saying in 1 Corinthians. It's all leading up to this point. Because of this, we can pursue unity. Because of this, we can trust that Jesus will preserve us. We can know that when we read our Bibles, the Spirit will help us understand His Word if we ask Him. We can build up the church. We can flee sexual immorality. We can discern truth from error. We can pursue self-control and contentment in our marriages or singleness or widowhood. We can live for God's glory in whatever situation He has placed us. We can pursue eternal priorities. We can glorify God in our eating and drinking. We can be faithful in a God-hating society. We can generously care for the needs of our leaders. We can flee from idolatry. We can use our spiritual gifts to build up one another and love one another. We can pursue God-honoring 
worship and fellowship. All because Jesus rose from the dead. You see, all of this theology in chapter 15 concerning the resurrection of believers from the dead is, is meant to get us to think and work with great hope and love. So look at verse 58 of chapter 15. This is the point. This is the whole point of all the theology in chapter 15. Look at verse 58. Therefore, therefore, this is the conclusion. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not useless. It's not in vain. So here's the first result that we see in the text. The first result of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Number one, eternal life for the believer. Christ's resurrection from the dead ensures eternal life for the believer. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now you can see this is a continuation of his argument. The sentence begins with the word, but. Paul is contrasting the fact, the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus with all the what-ifs in verses 12 to 19. So if the resurrection is a lie, then we are still in our sins. Our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, and Christians who have died will be eternally condemned, and we will have no hope. But beloved, none of that is true. None of that is true. Look at the text. Because in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Not only that, but the resurrection of Jesus has started off a chain reaction. God's sovereign over that chain reaction, but it has started off a chain reaction. Notice what he calls the resurrected Christ. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now that term first fruits has a rich Old Testament history. The term first fruits refers to the first portion of the crops that you would cultivate. It was the best of your crops, the best of your labors, the best of the fruit of your ground. And so after uh, rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and promising them a land to dwell in, God commanded his people to bring an offering of their first fruits as an act of faith and thanksgiving. They were to believe that the God who gave them the first of their crops would also supply the rest. God will do it. Now in this text, the word first fruits, a parke, is in the singular. It is one, referring to the resurrected Christ. He is the first fruits. He is the pledge of what is to come. You know, if you go to an ice cream shop, and you look in the display window, as I often do, and see a tub of a flavor that you've never tried before, and you want to know what that tastes like. What do you do? You ask for a sample, don't you? You ask for a sample. Well, Jesus' resurrection is a sample of what is to come for us. You know, our destiny is tied to His. He's the first fruits. Just as He was raised from the dead with a new glorified body that is suited for eternity, so also the saints who have died will also rise with new glorified bodies suited for the world to come, for the new earth. If you know what the first fruits are like, well, you know what the rest of the harvest will be like. So Paul points to Jesus and says, that's your sample right there. He's the first fruits. Look at him. Relish him. Believe in this. Hope in this. Brothers, we can be confident in hope because the Spirit who raised him from the dead now dwells in us. And he is the guarantee. Think of that word. He is the guarantee of what is to come. And when God makes guarantees, it will come. Beloved, let this truth, let this truth that Christ is the first fruits, let this truth chase away your fear of death. Let it chase away the fear of death. Remember, God did not leave you as orphans. He sent His Spirit to you just as He promised. Because His tomb is empty, one day 
yours will also be empty. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. And so when you're afraid, say to your faint heart, say to yourself, the Lord is risen. He is the first fruits. My king has risen. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? But notice what he says. He's the first fruits of what? Of those who have fallen asleep. You know, that's just Paul's way of speaking of Christians who have died. That phrase, fallen asleep, is a term that is pregnant. Pregnant with hope. With the promise of a resurrection. So if you're asleep, then you will rise. You'll get up. If Christ has risen, then the dead in Christ will follow suit. But he is the first. Colossians 1.18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, supreme. Now, why must he be the first? What's special about him? Look at the text. Here's the reason why. Verse 21, For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, Paul here is talking about the origins of our present condition. Because of a man that is our father Adam, because of his rebellion against God, mankind was judged and exiled from the garden. Adam's sin alienated him from a holy God and death as a consequence of his sin entered in to a once perfect state of existence. We, we call this event the fall. And we know what happened after that, don't we? Because Adam was the head of the human race, you could say that all of mankind, in a sense, was in Adam's seed. By Adam, by a man, came death. Came death. As children of Adam, we have all inherited his guilt and his sinful nature. And since the wages of sin is death, every one of us, everyone in this room, will one day die. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, Adam was supposed to be fruitful and multiply and exercise loving dominion over the earth so that the glory of God through his image bearers would spread beyond the borders of Eden. That was the plan. But Adam failed because of his disobedience. But because of God's good and wise plan, because of his plan to have human beings reign over this earth, God stepped in. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. In his grace and mercy, he sent a second Adam. You see, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and entered into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ was truly God and truly man. Truly God, because only God can save us from his eternal wrath. Only God can make us spiritually alive and bring us from a place of alienation to a place of communion with the Father. Only God can do that. But Christ was also truly human because we need a human head, don't we? Our representative needs to be like us, but without sin. If he has sin, well, he can't help us. He's in the same boat with us. He needs to be human, but without sin. He needs to be genuinely human to save humans. To do what Adam failed to do. If Adam had obeyed in the garden, he would have entered into the world to come. But instead of doing that, Adam cast the entire human race into sin. But friends, we know that Christ perfectly obeyed his father. He paid the penalty for sinners by offering himself as a sacrifice of atonement on the cross. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, declaring to everyone that he had accomplished what he had come to do for his people. For all those who would repent and believe on his name. Death had no claim on him because the death he died was not for his sin. 
No, it was for our sin. He died for us. Through his resurrection, he overcame the grave and the power of sin. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God did something that, that breaks our link, that breaks our tie to Adam's headship. As one author puts it, Christ stands at the beginning of a new humanity, a new creation, in a way analogous to, but not identical with the way, Adam stood at the beginning of the old order. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Brothers and sisters, this is the logic of federal headship. This is representational theology. Now, there's a sense in which we can understand this to some extent. We know that if our head, the president of our country, declares war on another country by default, we are at war. We are at war. He is our head. So you are either in Adam or in Christ. The most important question for you is who is your head? Who is your head? That will determine your destiny. Anyone who is not in Christ is an Adam. There are only two options. If you're not in Christ, you are in Adam. If you're not a Christian, one who has repented of their sin and is trusting in Jesus, you will be eternally condemned. Because you're in Adam. You're still in your sins. Friend, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how many good deeds you have done, whether you're a Hindu or a Muslim or an atheist or a Buddhist. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you are in Adam. You're in Adam and you will be condemned. But if you repent of your sins and you put your trust in Christ, you will be saved. You will be saved from God's condemnation, saved from the power of sin, and you will be reconciled to God. So turn to Christ and you will have eternal life. Turn to Christ and be saved. But when you turn to Christ, you will also know what it means to be truly human. Here's what I mean by that. You see, Christ is truly God, but he's also truly human. He's the perfect human. And that means the more you know him, the more you become Christ-like, and the more you embrace God's purposes for your humanity. This is what he created for. Turn to Christ and you will truly live. Notice that he says in Christ all shall be made alive. He's talking about the future. When we will be raised from the dead and given new resurrection bodies that will be suited for eternal life. For life on the new earth. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus ensures eternal life for believers. Now, this might sound confusing for some of you. You might be thinking, well, don't I have eternal life now? I thought that was something that you receive at conversion. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Brothers, we should not forget that eternal life is life that belongs to eternity. It is the life of God himself. That is the life that God gives to us as a, grace, as a gift of grace to those who believe. And what that means is that the coming of Jesus, his first coming, is like a divine invasion of the future age into our present, into this present age we now live. And we live between the overlap of the ages. You see, we've already entered into that eternal life, into that initial experience of eternal life. We have been born again. We know God. The new creation is already here in that sense. The restoration of all things in Jesus Christ has begun. But it's not yet fully here in all its consummate glory. But when it does come, we will enjoy the fullness of eternal life. We have now received new hearts, then we will receive new bodies. 
now is possible only because of the then in the future. Yes, we have eternal life now because eternal life has been promised to us and we get to share in that experience through faith even now. You see, Christians live in the promise of the future. We walk by faith. Our best life is yet to come. Beloved, this is why we can generously give away our money. This is why we can suffer in hope. This is why in the pursuit of faithful obedience, we can even lose our lives. Because we know we have a better possession, an abiding one, a better country, a better life, an everlasting life. Beloved, never separate these two realities. If you have entered into the joy of the new birth, we will enter the joy of having glorified bodies. So you can see how Christ's resurrection has set in motion a series of events, the sending of His Spirit, our conversions, our sanctification, and soon our glorification. See, these are all end times. These are all eschatological realities that have been inaugurated in Christ. The future is secure because of the resurrection. Now, after World War I, World War II followed. It's one of the great watersheds of 20th century geopolitical history. This was a conflict that involved virtually every part of the world during the years 1939 to 1945. And so you had the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, Japan on one side, and then there were the Allies, France, Great Britain, United States, the Soviet Union, to a lesser extent China. And the Western Allies had one goal, put an end to Hitler's reign of terror. And so on June 6, 1944, in a massive military operation that was codenamed Operation Overlord, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy in France. This was a German stronghold, and they pushed the German forces back. Everyone knew that on that day, they called it D-Day, the war was as good as over. A decisive blow had been dealt to the Axis powers. It was only a matter of time. But friends, final victory came only a year later. On May 8th, 1945, they called it V-Day, Victory Day, when the Germans finally surrendered. But in that interim period, that one year, there were so many battles fought, fought, so many skirmishes, so many deaths, so many setbacks. I think it was Oscar Kuhlmann, the New Testament scholar, who first said that our Christian experience is something like this. We live in the already but not yet, between D-Day and V-Day. That's where we live. God himself has invaded human history. In Christ, he has fought the decisive battle and he has rescued us. Our final victory has been secured. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. But till then, in the now, there are battles to be fought. If you're in Christ, if he is at head, then you are at war. We fight spiritual battles every day. If he is at war, you are at war. We still struggle with indwelling sin, don't we? We struggle, but we refuse to give in. And when we fall, we repent and rise by his resurrection power at work within us and we press on. We face trials of various kinds. We still grieve and suffer and we still die. Satan may have been wounded and cast out, but he still prowls around like a roaring lion, doesn't he? Seeking to devour God's people. He knows his time is up. And he's furious. But our struggle... Our work is not in vain. See, we labor, we push forward in hope, in certain of final victory. You will inherit eternal life. And friends, nothing can stop our king when he returns in glory. Here's the second result of Christ's resurrection. Number two, Christ will destroy all his enemies. He will destroy all his enemies. If you're wondering 
Well, how is all of this going to play out? Well, Paul says it's going to play out in an orderly way. This is a sovereign military operation waged by our unbeatable Savior. Our triune God has a glorious strategy to bring about the end of this age. There will come a time when all in Christ will be made alive. But look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. See, the word order is a word that describes rank. It's often used to describe the military arrangement of troops. So imagine a regiment or a company of soldiers marching forward, and they're led by the second division and the third division. So who leads first? Christ, the first fruits. He is the captain of our salvation. First his resurrection, then at his coming, his second coming, then at his coming will come the resurrection of all those who belong to Christ. At his coming, parousia. You know, this word parousia was sometimes used as a term to describe the visit of a high-ranking official like a king or emperor. The return of King Jesus at the end of the age to judge the world will coincide with the resurrection of the believers from the dead. It will be at his coming, at his parousia. And then what happens? Well, look at verse 24. Then comes the end. No more wars after that. It's over. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Beloved, I hope you can see how everything coincides, how everything coincides with the return of the king. It coincides with the return of the king, the resurrection of believers from the dead, and then comes the end of the age when all things will be made new. Beloved, there is an end coming. Did you hear that? There is an end coming. So fight your sin with renewed vigor. There is an end coming. So strengthen those feeble needs and knees and be of good courage. There is an end coming. So stand firm as soldiers of Christ. Put on the full armor of God and give no room for your flesh and for silly games and lewd entertainment. There is a battle going on for your soul. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his resurrection might. Know this. Jesus will destroy all his enemies. Everything that stands opposed to him. Satan, demons, hostile rulers. And he will deliver, hand over the kingdom to God the Father. Now what does he mean by that? Well, the kingdom of God, sometimes called the kingdom of heaven in the Gospels, it's the same thing. The kingdom of God is God's rule in Christ over his people. God's rule in Christ over his people. Now, that does not mean that God does not exercise sovereign rule over all the earth. He does. He is Lord over all the earth, over all the kingdoms of this world. But the kingdom of God is his saving rule over his people. The kingdom of Christ in this age, according to Jesus, is a concealed kingdom. It's a concealed kingdom. Jesus said that the kingdom is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. It is concealed. It's small. It's insignificant in the eyes of the world. People don't understand this because... Christ's saving rule does not expand by overthrowing governments. It expands and advances one conversion at a time. One conversion at a time as his church obeys the Great Commission. As his church labors with the power of his presence. This is why sometimes the church is called the church militant. It's fighting forward towards V-Day. Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. No, his kingdom belongs to the world to come. You see, the kingdom of God proper is the new heavens and the new earth, and it is already here. But the kingdom of God is not something you can visibly observe. No, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, or behold. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Luke 17, 20 to 21. You see, in this age, the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Our battles are spiritual, and local churches are embassies of that kingdom, populated with kingdom citizens. But friends, a time is coming when this kingdom will cover the whole earth. Every unbeliever will be judged for rejecting the gospel of the kingdom. And Christ will destroy all hostile opposition, and his saving rule will be over all the earth, visible for everyone to see. Revelation 11.15 Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. This is what Daniel prophesied in Daniel 7 verse 27. He said, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Did you hear that? You will reign with Christ forever. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Beloved, V-Day is coming, and it will soon be here. Christ is already on His throne. He rose, He ascended, and is seated at the Father's right hand, reigning from heaven. Hebrews 1.3, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has already ascended his throne. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He reigns. Look at verses 25 and 26. Paul says, for he must reign. He must reign. It is necessary for him to do this until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That is an image of subjugation. Paul here quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. It's that passage that was read for us earlier. The Lord says, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, Jesus interprets this passage as the Messiah who sits at God's right hand reigning. Hebrews 1.13 identifies this Lord as the Son of God Himself. Christ reigns as King in a particular way over His church in this age, and He will continue to do so till He returns and judges all His enemies. Brothers and sisters, that should give meaning to your life. His reign gives meaning to our earthly lives, and it gives us great hope. And as the gospel is preached and people come to faith through the power of the resurrection, Christ is plundering death. He is plundering death of all those who are subject to its power. And he's doing this through you. He's doing this through the witness of his church. So that in the end, death itself will be finally destroyed. Death itself will be finally destroyed. This will be the climax of his reign. So what are you waiting for? Go and tell others about this reigning king. Go and tell them about his gospel. He has the power to open blind eyes. Look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, the first assault against death was Christ's resurrection. The last and final assault on death will be at his second coming when he raises his people. This is what Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 54 to 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, Christians are an odd people. We are the only people who can grieve 
over death and yet grieve and hope and then make fun of death at the same time. Where, O oh death, is your victory? See, that'll be the day when the church militant, the saints who are laboring against the powers of darkness and their sin in the power of the Spirit in this age, that'll be the day when the church militant will become the church triumphant, resurrected, glorified. Oh, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. See, one day redemption will be complete. The Messiah's reign in this way will come to an end and our triune God will reign supreme over all things. And so here's the third result of Christ's resurrection. God will be glorified. God will be glorified. Friends, this is the end goal of Christ's mission. To restore all of creation to its proper submission to the Father for His glory and for the good of all creation. Here's why Christ reigns in this way. Look at the text, verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. This is God's plan. This is a quotation of Psalm 8, verse 6. So if you turn in your Bible and look at Psalm 8, in this psalm, David is blown away by God's creation of man. He's blown away by the honor God has bestowed on His image bearer. And in verses 5 to 6, he says this, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. See, God's purpose was to have a human priest king reigning over his creation as a reflection of his glory. And Adam failed to do that. But what Adam failed to do, Christ has accomplished and so now God has put all things under his Messiah. Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. God says this, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church for the sake of the church. Imagine that. All of this happens for the sake of the church. Beloved, victory is assured. It is assured. Or think about what Paul says in Philippians 2, 9-11. Because of what Christ did through His death and resurrection, God has highly exalted Him. He's bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, because this text says all things in sub subjection to the Messiah, Paul makes this clarification. Look at the text. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So all things, except who? Well, except God the Father. See, the mission of Christ is to honor the Father. Look at verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So picture this. Like a conquering general who completes his mission of redemption, Christ delivers the kingdom to the Father and will Himself, after it's all over, be subject to Him. You see, this word subjection appears six times in these last two verses, so it's important. And I think the point Paul is trying to make is similar to the point he makes in Philippians 2.10. Every knee will bow. Or take Colossians 1.20. He says, God, the Father, through the work of the Son, will reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to Himself. 
and our triune God will reign supreme and his reign will be unchallenged, indisputable. He will reign supreme. Our God will be all in all. That's what that phrase means. Or take Romans 8, 20 to 21. For the creation was subjected, same word, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So that which was formerly subject to futility will now, along with everything else, be subject to the Father. Now it's important to note two things. Number one, verse 25, look at verse 25. Verse 25 suggests that the messianic reign as he is reigning now, is temporary. He must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. So when he destroys his enemies, puts them under his feet and hands over the kingdom, does this mean that he stops reigning? Is Christ no longer king? Shouldn't he be all the more king? Now that he's vanquished his foes? No, it seems like the word until in the text, the word until here is not so much about an expiry date of his reign, but rather a completion of his task that is specific to his messianic reign. That will be like saying, I will continue to speak until they are persuaded. Doesn't mean I won't speak after that. So listen to what the 4th century church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, said. Listen carefully. Gregory wrote, Must he cease to be king or removed from heaven? Why? Who shall make him cease or for what cause? What a, what a bold and very anarchical interpreter you are. And yet you have heard that of his kingdom there shall be no end. Your mistake, says Gregory, your mistake arises from not understanding that until is not always exclusive of what comes after, but asserts up to that time without denying what comes after it. Gregory goes on. He says to take a single instance. How else would you understand? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Does it mean he will no longer be so afterward? You know, the church fathers are great interpreters. They make great conversational friends. You should read them. And so we must understand this reigning to be his reign while accomplishing his messianic mission. His reign afterwards will be of a different nature. Here's the second thing we should be aware of. Because we're talking about the mission of Christ who must be truly God and truly human, when this passage speaks about the subjection of the Son, it is speaking of what the Son does as the Messiah. It is speaking of His mission in human history as the Christ. It does not mean that the Son is lesser or subordinate in His essence, as though the second person of the Trinity is a lesser God. No, we know that all three persons of the triune God are fully God and yet mysteriously and eternally one God. Nor does this mean that the incarnate Son in His redemptive mission was never submissive to His Father, but now all of a sudden, after He completes His mission, He decides to be. No, that's not what it means. No, we believe in the inseparable operations of the Trinity. All the works of God are triune. There's no intra-Trinitarian conflict. We know this is talking about the Son in His incarnate state, in His redemptive mission, because of four reasons. Four reasons. Number one, look at verse 21. The emphasis is on His humanity. By a man has come the resurrection of the dead. Reason number two, verse 22, He is the second Adam. Reason number three, think about the whole passage. His messianic role is emphasized. This is one whom the prophets spoke about. The one who will destroy all opposition and set up an everlasting kingdom. Reason number four. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 seems to be parallel to verse 28. 
So Christ delivering the kingdom to his father is parallel to the son himself being subject to him. That is the father. So I think Paul uses the word son to distinguish son from the father, alluding to that covenant of redemption. So this subjection or submission should not be seen as an ontological subordination or a subordination of essence. The son is not a lesser God in nature or being. That would be heresy. Now this is Paul's way of saying, there never was, never is, and never will be any confusion or hiccups in God's plan. His purposes for us in human history will be fulfilled and he will fulfill it through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Your Lord and my Lord. And God will be exalted in glory forever. Father, Son, in spirit, in glory forever. Beloved, this is why we can die daily to our sin. This is why we do not have to fear evil people. You don't have to fear evil people. You do not have to fear hostile governments. This is why we can stare at injustices and we can stare even death in the face and march forward proclaiming the gospel and say with one voice, V-Day is coming. Don't lose heart. The King is coming. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you glory for what Christ has done. Lord, we pray that we would look to him always, every day, and trust in his finished work for us. Lord, we pray that your people would abound in hope and be fearless. Fearless to speak about Jesus. Fearless to battle sin and temptation. Fearless in the face of suffering. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would be full of courage and that we would be strengthened in our faith and hope. Fill us with your spirit that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.